Hello and welcome to another installment of Soccer Pints, your one-stop shop for all things American soccer. I'm your host, Will Clark. If you aren't familiar, Soccer Pints is an American soccer podcast where we cover everything we can about U.S. soccer, Americans in Europe, Major League Soccer, and many other exciting topics. Not only that, but we also, typically, enjoy a nice pint or two during these chats. So pour yourself a beverage, if you're of age, of course, and let's get into it. Last week, we took a look at who made our U.S. men's national team roster for our October friendlies that take place this Saturday against Germany and next Tuesday against Ghana. We also answered a few more questions that had come in and shared some final thoughts around the 2030 World Cup host announcement and what could potentially be coming up in 2034. Today, we are going to do a preview and prediction of sorts for both of our friendlies, taking a look at who might be in the starting 11 for what should be the toughest matches we have played all year. We will make some scoreline predictions as well, and we'll wrap up with a few final thoughts of the week. All right, first things first. If you missed last week's episode, shame on you. But truly, if you missed last week's episode, you would have learned that I have decided to go sober October. And after 12 days, I can say I've been successful and I'm holding on strong. I also said that I would be featuring breweries in other episodes this month, even though I won't be partaking in having a nice pint myself. So. This week, I have one of my favorites returning to Soccer Pints as our brewery feature, and that is my friends over at Palm City Brewing out of Fort Myers, Florida. And specifically this week, we are featuring their vibrant thing, an imperial-style double dry-hopped hazy double IPA that is loaded up with citra hops for a vibrant, citrus, tropical, fruity aroma and flavor that every one of us hopheads craves. This one is 9% in alcohol, and truly We'll have you feeling like Q-Tip singing. Now, I don't think too many young listeners, maybe even some of the older ones, know who Q-Tip is. But you should know who Ryan Bowen and his entire Palm City staff and crew are. They have been huge supporters of Soccer Pines since day one, including if you remember last year when they brewed the Pulisic Pale Ale for the Men's World Cup. And they have continued to grow as a brewery, including winning a recent medal from Best Florida Beer for their Munich Dunkel. And it is fitting for them to feature today, given we are playing Germany on Saturday. As Ryan recently was in Germany for the real Oktoberfest experience, entrenched in German culture, and has been personally focusing on creating classic, true German-style brews recently. So, while I can't enjoy what I know isn't a delicious, vibrant thing today, go support Palm City Brewing and get your hands on some. Cheers. USA vs. Germany coming up tomorrow, Saturday, October 14th at 3 p.m. Eastern Time from East Hartford, Connecticut. The first real test for Greg Berhalter since returning to lead this national team. Last week, I mentioned I would be joined by a previous guest host of the show. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to coordinate a time that worked for both of our schedules, so you're stuck with only me today. We hope to have him join next week to recap both friendlies and talk through what will be the good the bad, and definitely the ugly. Some quick history into this matchup against the Germans. The U.S. has an all-time record of four wins, seven losses, and no draws. They first met back in 1993 when the Germans won by a scoreline of 4-3. Former U.S. men's national team head coach Jurgen Klinsmann scored for the Germans that day. 
They met again during the 1998 World Cup, where once again, Klinsmann scored in a 2-0 German victory. The U.S. won their first time ever a year later in a 3-0 friendly victory. But the most famous and most controversial meeting between the two sides came during the 2002 World Cup in the quarterfinals when Greg Berhalter, of all people, saw his shot on goal, saved by the hand of a German player, not their goalkeeper, and no penalty, nor a red card was given, and the U.S. ultimately lost 1-0 to end their World Cup dreams. Another meeting in the World Cup occurred in 2014, where the Germans won their last title. In the final group stage match, the U.S. lost 1-0, but both teams still advanced to the knockout stage. The most recent matchup happened back in 2015 in Germany, where the U.S. defeated the defending world champions at the time 2-1 off of goals from two names that we no longer hear about in U.S. soccer, Mix Diskerud and Bobby Wood. Now that you've got some history on this matchup, let's look at the current state of the two programs. Some would say the U.S. is on the rise and the Germans are on a hard downward spiral. They recently fired their manager after some poor results, including a 4-1 loss to Japan last month, and appointed the 36-year-old Julian Nagelsmann, who is managed by Bayern Munich, RB Leipzig, and Hoffenheim in the Bundesliga. After finishing last in their group during the 2018 World Cup and not advancing again from the group stage last year in Qatar, the Germans are in desperate need of some positive results before next summer when they host Euro 2024. The Americans, on the other hand, have this golden generation currently in the program. A lot of great form in their play over the past month. Just a lot of positives going on going on around at the moment, which gives us hope, gives us some optimism. And we are now at the moment in time, as Weston McKinney said earlier this week, where we expect to win these games, not just compete as we have in the past against perennial world powers in the sport. Now, I'll have more on that in my final thoughts of the week. But for now, let's chat through what we might expect on Saturday and how we might line up against them. The Germans are extremely technically driven as a nation. The fundamentals are preached in every angle of their processes. Simple play, one-two combinations, staying disciplined in their shape. They have the ability to be flashy if needed, but rarely do it because of their systematic approach to the game. They will possess the ball, make teams chase them, and then wait for their opportunity. And they don't need many opportunities to break you down and punish you. We saw them dismantle Brazil during the World Cup semifinals uh, in Brazil, 7-1. to one. They were clinical then, and they, have this, they still have the ability to be clinical now. Maybe they have had some changing of the guard amongst their players, but they still have incredible depth and lineups that they can trot out on the pitch at any given time. And with Nagelsmann now in charge, it should be an improved team with even more power moving forward. We talked about formations last week and what the U.S. men's national team should play with. And I alluded to the fact that it truly depends on the opponent, that we have the strengths to play multiple different variations and looks. We are missing Jedi Robinson and Tyler Adams for this match. So that could influence some of the decisions that Greg has to make in the squad. We have Gio Reyna back in the squad, but he is also just getting back into his fitness after another lengthy injury spell. There had been rumblings that the U.S. would play with a traditional 10 and a double pivot behind that individual this week. Malik Tillman was slated to be in that role, but he had to withdraw from camp due to a knock that he picked up last weekend after scoring his first goal for PSV. I still believe, given the opponent, 
that we are going to start in a 4-2-3-1 formation with that middle of the three being that traditional 10 roll that I'm talking about. As we covered last week, we have a strong squad called in and we have most of our top options available minus the aforementioned Jedi and Adams missing. So let's predict this starting 11. Matt Turner and goal. No real surprise there. In defense, we definitely have some decisions to make. I think Serginho Des lines up at right back, Chris Richards and Tim Ream at center backs, and Christopher Lund is going to fill in at left back in Jedi's absence. We could potentially see Greg go with Dest on the left and Scally on the right or vice versa. But after last month, I thought Lund did good enough to merit some more looks at the left back spot. In that double pivot or the two in this formation, Greg is going to go with Eunice Musa and McKinney together, and he absolutely should if this is the direction he decides to go. I think a lot of people underestimate the defensive abilities from both, both of these players, and they will be going up against some world-class opponents and players in Ilkay Gundogan, Jamal Musala, Leon Goretzka, and others. The three in front of them will have some familiar names in Christian Pulisic on the left, Tim Weah on the right wing, and in that 10 roll, I think we're going to see Reyna get the nod to start and play in the first 45 minutes before coming off at half, similar to what Greg has done in the past with managing minutes for players coming back from injuries. Now after halftime, I think you could see Reyna come off and a newcomer like Lenny Maloney coming on and pushing either Musa or McKinney into more of that 10 roll, or even someone like Brendan Aronson coming on to provide some energy. Up top, we're going to see Fuller and Balligan. He's going to get the start over Ricardo Pepe, and he should, as he continues to be in fine form for Monaco scoring goals. Again, this will be a strong lineup, and it's going to be a really strong test against the Germans. I think the match being at midday with perfect fall weather will be nice too. Germany has a lot of talent. The U.S. has a lot of emerging talent. There will be some familiarity with one another, as a lot of the players play against play against and or with one another at the club level. On paper, the U.S. is ranked 11th in the world and Germany is ranked 15th currently. The U.S. should be the favorite, right? Ranked higher in the world, playing on home soil. That should be a recipe for success. I think it's going to be an incredibly tough, dare I say, humbling match for the Americans. I have a lot of respect for Julian Nagelsmann and his approach to coaching and managing talent. That is the difference maker for me. He will put his squad in position to win, and ultimately, and I hate making this prediction, I think Germany wins 2-0. As I said, this will be a real test for Greg. We saw his lack of ability to manage a game in the World Cup against the Netherlands. He couldn't make the adjustments to fight back, and it cost the U.S. I see a similar result happening on Saturday. So that's the German prediction. What about Tuesday against Ghana? Well, I'm not going to go too deep into the history of these two squads. We played against them back in 2006 in the World Cup and lost 2-1 to one in a winner-take-all battle to advance to the knockout phase. In 2010, we met them again in the World Cup round of 16, losing an extra time, which eliminated the Americans. And then in 2014, we kicked off the World Cup group stage against Ghana in a match that saw Clint Dempsey score 30 seconds into it in our bomb-pop jerseys, and then surprise substitute, John Brooks, won the match 2-1 to one on a late header off a corner kick in what was one of the best starts in a World Cup that the U.S. could ever ask for. 
Ghana has primarily been one of the top nations in Africa over the past two decades, but they have fallen down to 60th in the current world rankings. And I will state this one more time for everyone. FIFA world rankings give us context, but are absolutely meaningless in my opinion. They competed in the 2022 World Cup, beating a top 10 squad in Switzerland 2-0, losing to Portugal 3-2, and then defeating South Korea 3-2 to advance to the round of 16, where ultimately they lost 2-0 to Uruguay. They can be an explosive squad, but they also can lack discipline at times and get exposed defensively. They're going to face off against Mexico on Saturday in Charlotte, North Carolina, before meeting the U.S. on Tuesday night in Nashville, Tennessee. I expect a similar lineup for the Americans to start off with as we continue with the continuity theme in this program. My prediction for this one is that the U.S. and Ghana draw 2-2 with goals from Ballo and Pulisic. Would I consider those results to be successful for an October-friendly camp? As long as everyone walks away healthy, that's all I truly care about. It would be disappointing not to show the world that the U.S. truly is among the world elite in soccer right now. Sure, I wouldn't say a loss and a draw is success, but this is a long play right now with 2026 being the vision. This is experience and two matches that could prove extremely beneficial in our preparations for next summer and in 2026. Either way, tune in Saturday for what should be an exciting match against Germany. All right, moving along now into our final thoughts of the week, skipping some questions this uh, this week. Most of them were around, do I think U.S. will beat Germany? Do I think Reyna will play? How can you not drink a beer and watch these matches? You know, really hard-hitting questions that came in. So we will answer some next week based off of the performances. But up first in our final thoughts. We were busy breaking down the U.S. men's national team roster release last week, and this past Sunday – the U.S. Under-23 Olympic team released their first roster in training camp. And there were a few familiar names and faces headed to Phoenix for that squad. Head coach Marko Mitrovic ended up naming 24 players to his initial Olympic camp, including Tanner Tessman, Taylor Booth, Paxton Aronson, and Benja Kramashi. Several other players in camp have made senior appearances like Caleb Wiley, Brian Reynolds, Jean-Luca Bugio, and Aiden Morris. For the Olympics next summer in Paris, the men's soccer portion will consist of players under the age of 23, hence why we call it under 23. Each nation participating is allowed to have three overaged players join the squad as well. Most people will hear that and think that because there are so many players on our senior team who are 23 or younger, that they will automatically make the Olympic team. And that is just not the case. There are other priorities next summer like Copa America for our senior players to focus on. In addition, most clubs won't want their better youth players risking an injury in the summer playing in the Olympics. This is a great opportunity for some of our under-20 national team regulars to showcase their abilities and position themselves to break through to the full senior squad, and it helps that our player pool is massive at the moment. In fact, we covered that pretty recently in an episode. There will be a lot of guys who get to work with this team over the next nine months to position the U.S. to actually win the Olympic gold. They faced off against Mexico on Wednesday night of this week and defeated the Mexicans 2-1 off the goals of Esmir Bajraktarevich, sorry for butchering that name, of the New England Revolution, and Obed Vargas of the Seattle Sounders. 
Unfortunately, the match wasn't on television or streamed online, so I wasn't able to watch. But thankfully, Brian Sharetta from American Soccer Now, a great American soccer reporter if you were ever looking for good, good sources to get information from, he provided us all with details throughout the match. Taylor Booth had a penalty saved after just five minutes, and he was subbed off after a half hour in a planned sub due to him just coming back from an injury. It sounds like Mitrovic played several players out of their regular positions as well, which is head-scratching in itself. Either way, they picked up a valuable win over rival Mexico, and they will face off against Japan on Tuesday night in what should be available to stream after the senior team plays their match against Ghana. On to the second thought of the week. I mentioned something that Weston McKinney said earlier this week. He stated that, and I quote, We always compared ourselves in terms of, you know, we wanted to compete with top-level countries. We expect ourselves to win these games now instead of just competing with them. It's a great opportunity to see kind of where we're at, end quote. First off, I love the attitude. I love the mindset. It's something we have lacked in the past, maybe rightfully so. Whenever we got results against Spain in the 2009 Confederations Cup semifinals or against France in 2018 prior to the World Cup, nobody expected us to win. Competing was a good enough standard. That's no longer the case. And I think McKinney is showing great leadership and maturity by speaking up and making it known that these games against top countries like Germany, who is a four-time world champion, are no longer something that we're just happy to be playing in. Secondly to this, I think the U.S. still has a bit to go in terms of truly being a contender and among the world's best. If the U.S. were to be placed in a tournament and faced off against Brazil, France, and Argentina, I would anticipate losing all three of those matches. We just aren't at that level yet. But those are the three best teams in the world right now. Playing against others like England, Germany, Netherlands, or even Spain no longer has that same fear factor that we once had. And that is exactly why I love that McKinney has the belief that he has. He should have it. We can win these matches now. However, we still need to make that leap and truly compete on the world stage against the world's best and win the big matches when they come to us. Another final thought this week, and this one is from an interview that former U.S. women's national team star Carly Lloyd gave to the CBS Galazzo crew this week. Lloyd criticized the current state of the U.S. women's national team and their lack of a championship winning mentality, while also criticizing U.S. soccer for the struggles that she experienced during her career by saying that they stunted her growth on and off the field and created a dysfunctional environment for U.S. women's national team players. Now, I won't go through the entire interview. You can go find that and check it out. But she gave one of, or I guess, one of the biggest things that I took out of it was that she gave her statements about how dysfunctional she feels the team was when she was around and currently too. She said most people think all 23 players on the squad get along, and she was adamant that they do not. And it was super unhealthy within the team, competing for spots, but also deals off the field, sponsorships off the field that certain players got. She felt she couldn't trust anyone within the team or U.S. Soccer Federation altogether. She said she felt the Federation picked and chose the players to serve as the team's stars 
and force her way into the into the conversation only through her on-field performances. She said it was like being a puppet. Lloyd scored a hat trick in a World Cup final and was the Women's World Player of the Year. But to her point, you wouldn't have really ever known it. U.S. soccer has put players like Alex Morgan and Megan Rapinoe as the faces of their women's brand. One for sex appeal and the other for human rights advocacy. Not to discredit their careers on the field because they've done very well. But during the past 10 to 15 years, Lloyd had been a quiet, keep to herself, behind the scenes top performer that U.S. soccer never groomed to be a star in the ways that they have hand selected others. Now, it's quite the accusation from Lloyd, but it's a fantastic two part interview that will complete next Wednesday on the CBS Galazzo Sports Network. And to the final thought of the week, I couldn't do an episode this week and not give the proper remembrance of a former friend and teammate of mine, a captain of our U.S. Under-17 national team, World Cup team, back at the 2001 World Cup, and just overall, one of the best people you could have ever gotten to know in life. I've mentioned his name and background a few times during the show, but October 11th marked the 21st anniversary of the unfortunate death of Gray Griffin. Gray was such an incredible person, both on and off the field. He was as genuine as they come. He wanted others to have as much or more success than he had. He was so humble too, despite all of the success that he had quickly found. He had just started his freshman year at Furman University, a team that featured and included World Cup veterans and Clint Dempsey and Ricardo Clark, guys like longtime MLS veteran Drew Moore and so many other top players. Midway through our freshman seasons back in 2002, I remember it like it was yesterday. I had just completed a morning practice session at UNC Wilmington, and my coaches, Aiden Heaney and Jeremy Wisdo, asked to see me afterwards in their office, which seemed a bit odd to me. I thought I had a strong session, and they just had their look on these faces that I can't explain to this day. I knew something was off. When I walked into their office, three of my other teammates were sitting in there. All of us played club ball in Charlotte with Gray, I should add. Then Aiden told me my dad was on the phone and that he needed to tell me something. When I put the phone to my ear, I just knew it was going to be something terrible. He barely was able to muster out, Will, I am so sorry. Gray was killed in a car accident early this morning. Now, I don't remember much after that. I know I dropped the phone on the floor, and I remember saying not to tell me that in some different choice words. It was one of the most painful moments of my life. I lost one of my best friends who was rising so quickly amongst the U.S. soccer rankings. He had become very close with stars like Eddie Johnson, Demarcus Beasley, Justin Mapp. Yet every single day, he would check in on me and ask how things were going in training at UNCW. I had been starting at left back since I arrived as a freshman, and I was discouraged because I felt I should be running center midfield in my usual position. But Gray just challenged me to work harder, to play wherever I was asked, and to make the most of it, telling me that I had more ability than some of these other guys within the national team, reminding me that I used to shut Eddie down whenever North Carolina played Florida back in our ODP days, and I was forced to play defense on the state team. Now, 
Clearly, he was lying in those moments, but that's the kind of encouragement and motivation Gray always gave to me, to everyone he crossed paths with. It's crazy to think 21 years have passed since his death. I know he would have accomplished so many things in life, in soccer, as a person giving back to others. He was just that kind of guy. And it's why my wife and I gave one of our children the middle name Gray in honor of him. So here's to Gray Griffin in 21 years since his passing. Cheers, G. And on that note, that's it for today's episode. I appreciate you letting me preview the U.S. men's national team matches coming up against Germany and Ghana on Saturday and Tuesday of next week. It should be a really good test for our guys to see how they stack up against top competition. So make sure to tune in and watch. A reminder for everybody, if you have a question for the show or would like a specific topic to be discussed on the show, please send me a message on Instagram or email me directly at will.clark at thesoccerpints.com. Also, if you want to be a supporter of the show, please head to my Buzzsprout website and sign up. It starts at $3 per month. You can cancel anytime, and we will be doing some merchandise giveaways each month to some lucky supporters. Thank you to those who have already shown the uh, show some love. Thanks again to Palm City for being the brewery feature once again for us. Until next time, cheers, my friends.